0: This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Coin Gaming. Stick around for more info about them later in the episode. What's up, everyone? I'm Charlie Shrem, and this is Untold Stories, where twice a week, we dive deep with crypto's most influential leaders to find out how this movement truly came to be. This show is powered by BlockWorks Group, a media company with over 20 podcasts in their networks. Check them out at BlockWorksGroup.io. With that... Today's guest is Bart Stevens, the founder and managing partner of Blockchain Capital, which launched back in 2013 and had so many different Bitcoin entrepreneurs and companies that they've invested in that are going public now, like Coinbase and Kraken, and has had thousands of entrepreneurs work for them and for their portfolio companies. They were the first company to launch the NetAsset value token, the blockchain, Blockchain Capital token. They were the first company to invest in so many companies and arguably pioneered Blockchain investing I talked to Bart today. He was awesome. And I'll talk to you guys right in a second. I'm here today with Bart Stevens. Bart, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting
0: me. So you, um, I want to, you were asking me like questions and things before the show and how we do the research. And it's funny. I like talking about this because people ask, but um, you know, like laying in bed last night, I prepared kind of like the show. And the first thing I remember is, as I try to like go back into old emails and old conversations I've had. And if I've ever talked to the people before, you know, I've been to your office twice and I've met you guys. And I remember the first time I wanted to visit your office in California, you're going to laugh, but don't laugh at me yet. Um, I remember like, literally, I just wanted to touch the walls because at that time in 2013, when you had launched, um, there was no VC, there were no VC funds. There was no, so blockchain capital, you, it's like calling it like almost like the Bitcoin foundation. I was like, why do you call it the Bitcoin foundation? Well, blockchain capital because there was no blockchain capital there was not. it just wasn't there yet there was nothing else they're like touching the walls to see what is this existence you have these two guys who know what they're doing they're coming from the VC world and now maybe our industry can actually grow and you guys were not only involved in in investing in some of the earliest and first companies I want to hear your stories of some of meeting these CEOs for the first time who we know today who have these crazy twitter followings um and you guys also did some crazy things like launching the first uh, net uh, nav token, like net asset value token. um and so not only just investing but also pioneering in your own right. My first question is why?
1: So um
0: a lot of questions there, but I can start no I'm sorry no, no, it's
1: quite all right. Um, we actually our firm started as cryptocurrency partners. um so uh, in two thousand and twelve. Um, my brother and I were kind of getting out of the hedge fund business. So I started my career at E-Trade, which um, was kind of the Coinbase of its time. And they were bringing online stock trading to the masses and charging $20 for a stock trade. And you know, in 1997, uh, when I started my career, um, Merrill Lynch was still charging $300 for a stock trade. So I kind of really started my career in arguably the first fintech company. Wait, so um, was,
0: was there a such thing as like retail stock trading? like? Uh, yeah, There was enough. basically
1: discount brokerage trading over the phone. And of course, Charles Schwab was the pioneer of that model. Then there was quote unquote, full service brokerage. And that was this kind of paternalistic model where your broker would tell you what to buy and charge you inordinate um, amounts of money for stock trades and commissions. And, and E-Trade came along and kind of broke that model or, or iterated on the Charles Schwab phone based discount brokerage model. I had a background in kind of financial services, and my brother and I were in the hedge fund business for uh, well over a decade before we um, uh, co-founded Blockchain Capital. And, you know, it was, um, it was our experience, actually, as video game investors that would ultimately bring us um, to crypto, which is a common theme that you'll see through a lot of early um, crypto enthusiasts and entrepreneurs. I think, you know, Jesse at Kraken. And MedTech. Uh,
0: A lot of med tech, too. Yeah, we did a
1: lot in genomics and bioinformatics. But for us, the real aha moment was um, we were um, investing in video game companies through our hedge fund. And these video game companies had virtual worlds like World of Warcraft or Second Life. These Second Life. Second Life is another good example. Um, Philip Rosedale is actually an entrepreneur in our portfolio. He was one of the first people.
0: I think I probably went hung out at his office and I went to, to your office right after that same trip in 2013.
1: Yeah, you might have, you might have. And so for us, you know, it was our, our hedge, our prior career as a hedge fund manager, investing in video game companies that basically were were launching digital currencies. These digital currencies were not blockchain based. They were in my view, the predecessors to cryptocurrencies, but we saw that uh, in the real world gamers, um, put value in in digital assets. And so when Bitcoin came along and we became aware of it in 2012, our mind was already open and expanded to this concept of digital money or digital assets. And so um, to your point, we looked around and we're kind of looking for funds that would give us exposure um, where we would be a limited partner in a fund. We would be a client. And after interviewing a bunch of people and talking to guys like Mickey Malka at Ribbit Capital or Wences. Or Barry Silbert, we had a series of conversations with early in um, kind of 2012 um, about partnering with him when he was still running Second Life. Um, and ultimately, we didn't find like a fit. We didn't see people that, um, a fund that saw the world the way we did. And and the entrepreneurs we know in the sector really needed capital to help grow their business. So that's why we founded Blockchain Capital.
0: I never, I never, uh, oh, it's funny because all the stories and everything and all the like the, the circles that you're talking about, all the people, um, I've heard of some of the stories before, and what you're telling me, like I've heard from other people and and how you guys got founded. Um, it's so funny that you mentioned uh, investing in video games because I feel like there's a huge, huge overlap um, on that. you know, and we talked about medical technology, the founder actually, the producer of the show also used to be in, in med medtech too. when you were when you guys were like pre-bitcoin, pre-crypto, when you and your brother were investing in in video games. Was the conversation about value had where like these companies ever saying, Yeah, and we have this token, were they using the word token? Were they talking about in-game currency? Were they talking about value? Were they ever trying to like take debt against that? You know how like airlines can borrow against their uh their like loyalty programs. I'm trying to like create like a pre-crypto world uh, of what normal people would talk about as value and tokens and because There's not a lot about that uh, in history. You can't really find a lot of data because Bitcoin and crypto is is almost like overshadowed the world of, hey, this is we want to do digital money, digital value. Uh, I call it unfiated value, like non-government by non-government decree. Right. So what was that? What were those conversations like?
1: It was interesting that you asked. The lexicon was different, but a lot of the ideas were the same. So um, my brother and I were big gamers. We've grown up playing video games um, in our Early childhood days, writing video games, eventually investing in video game companies. And what we realized as World of Warcraft um, heavy uh, players is that there was what was lacking was provable scarcity. And so, for example, Charlie, let's say you and I were on a, a quest to, to go slay a dragon and there was a chest of gold that dropped, and there was a magical sword that gave us some sort of power. What you and I didn't know was that was that magical sword the only one in the game, or were there 10 million of them? If there were 10 million of them, that magical sword wasn't very valuable. If there was only two in the game, it was probably really, really valuable. And so the terminology in the video game industry at that time was around real money trading. And and so to exchange value, you had to pull, you basically had to work around the kind of compliance systems within World of Warcraft and Second Life. You would have to basically conduct transactions outside of the game. And there was certain risk in that around theft and fraud and stuff like that. So... The aha moment for us was in discovering Bitcoin and the enabling technology of of, of the blockchain was, wow, we can mathematically prove digital scarcity. Um, And, in fact, therefore, items can have value. Blockchains are really good for transfer of title, as you know. And so, you know, one of the areas that we're investing in currently today at Blockchain Capital is still that intersection of video games um, and kind of crypto. Um, because the demographics are very similar it's a y- it's young, predominantly males uh, in Asia and the us that play video games like world of warcraft or their mm-hmm. their um, kind of uh, follow-on games uh, fortnite, what have you and that's the same audience that basically owns crypto. so the market is huge are China, US, Korea, and japan
0: There's a huge overlap of 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 everyone who's doing that on of all users in involved in crypto. what type of other uh, what type of other Companies and, and projects did you invest in before crypto that kind of gave you the not experience but understanding of financial technology or provable scarcity because no one's really thinking about provable scarcity unless you're investing in video game type companies. So um, I know that you were one of the founders of, uh, of oncology.com. Was there anything in that relation that uh, that you kind of took to the experience of today?
1: So I've been, um, as I told you, I worked as kind of a junior executive at ETrade, and that was my um, baptism by fire with, with financial technology. Then I founded a company, Oncology.com, which was really about connecting cancer patients and doctors and making sure they could get into the... Um, appropriate clinical trials, and we had a bunch of high-profile investors um, like Paul Allen from Microsoft and Mike oh, Mokin cool. and Andy Grove. These were all cancer survivors themselves. And that was my first time as a founder of a startup company. Um, then I would go on to, you know, with my brother, found a hedge fund firm and ultimately blockchain capital. So, we've been a founder three times. And so, the medical industry has shares some similarities with um, the financial industry in that they're both very regulated. They're dominated by incumbents and it's really hard to be a startup um, competing against banks or healthcare insurance companies or hospitals. And so even though the industries are different, a lot of the challenges are the same, especially when it comes to regulation.
0: That's a good point in the financial industry and the medical world. And there are a few other industries that you're just so kind of burdened by regulations. It scares a lot of people away. Very difficult to start. I didn't know a lot like about regulations and things, Like that when I first got involved in the space, I didn't really understand like the veracity and how and how things worked. And you can't really in some of these industries, you can't really like throw shit at the wall to see what sticks. Imagine if you were like preparing a covid vaccine and you're just doing so. I understand the need. I do. And, you know, you study political science, as did I. I think crypto has made us uh, more self-aware of like where we fall on a political, moral, social spectrum. Right. Like probably all over the place. Uh, has it made you like personally, I used to be not like a statist, but before I got involved in crypto, you know, guys like Eric and Roger used to make fun. of. They call me statist. That literally was my nickname. Eric would walk in the office. Good morning, Eric. Hey, statist. What's up, buddy? Like literally, that's what that was my name. Um, not because I was a statist. I just didn't know better.
1: Yeah, um, that's pretty funny. I, I, I wouldn't have uh, thought of you as a statist, but I guess it's all I didn't relative. Know. Um You know, my academic work uh, in college really focused on the U.S. government's surveillance capabilities. So I was a political science major. I looked at national security studies at Princeton, and um, I did a lot of work basically studying uh, the KGB and then ultimately the U.S. um, government's various intelligence gathering apparatuses. And uh, it became clear to me early on that um, early programs like Echelon and Carnivore um, run out of the NSA and other three-letter intelligence agencies were basically reading everyone's email. So, I you know, after um, my academic work, I had a healthy respect for the technological prowess of our intelligence agencies and have become pretty paranoid ever since. And you know what you what we see in a lot of the early founders of crypto are these are folks, and I've put you in that this bucket as well, that you know had a had a healthy rebel streak in them, you know that saw the system as um, overbearing, potentially corrupt. And they wanted to put a dent in the universe. Thank you. I
0: appreciate that, by the way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to put a dent in the universe and make the form of capitalism that was more fair, more open, accessible to anyone with a mobile phone. And so, you know, I think what we're seeing across lots of different um, kind of fault lines in the U.S. and abroad is people at a very foundational level know that the system is broken. And you can see it in the protests and on the streets of Hong Kong, in Minneapolis, And so whether it's, you know, the Wall Street, which is a system that makes rich people richer, or whether it is centralized internet monopolies using us all as kind of targets for their data mining or um, corrupt political systems here and abroad, there is a yearning for a lot of the people in crypto um, to to change the system. And we find that really inspirational. So we try to identify founders and partners that are building new businesses that will... um, over time, displace a lot of the incumbents, but incumbents don't go quietly. They fight like hell, and that's what we're seeing in the U.S. regulatory environment right now.
0: Would you would you change that statement from the system is broken to the systems, like plural? Because I feel like what I've learned is that there's not one system. There's just a million different uh, institutions, infrastructure, systems that just operate inefficiently and, and clunkily, I don't know if clunkily is even a word, on top of each other, uh, and so like... Uh, and they don't talk to each other, and they almost compete with each other in, in an inefficient way. Uh, i so I almost wonder like if we change that and we're and crypto is almost this better system that's built on top of it that connects the old systems or or makes a better one. I don't know, but that's kind of how i'm I'm pushing towards now
1: i think I think you're you're right on that. I mean, I look at the kind of blockchain slash crypto um system as a parallel universe um you know it is um uh, And there's companies like Binance and Coinbase that kind of connect people from the traditional financial world to a crypto native world. Those are what we call the onboarders. And the right analogy in our view is um, kind of like what AOL did in the late 90s. AOL was once the largest technology company in the world because they were onboarding people from to the Internet, from an offline world. And that's what we're seeing with crypto now. Um, and so I think there's some commonalities in a lot of these systems and, and, and what they are is they share centralized power structures, whether it's a political system, an economic system, or the technology monopolies. And of course, crypto has a set of values that we try to adhere to, which is around decentralization, uh, transparency over opacity. And I think it's important not to just talk the talk, but to walk the walk on those things as
0: well. You, you you brought up something great. You brought up something that I actually wanted to expand on because I was thinking about it the other day, and I don't have the answer, and, and you can help me figure it out. Um, so I was trying to wonder, I was trying to understand why only 10 years in, most of the companies from the early days just don't exist anymore. One of the early founders don't exist anymore. Most of the early um, tokens and coins from the, uh, uh, from pre-2014 don't exist anymore. And I was trying to understand why in an industry that's so young and nascent, and so- Kind of what I'm, what I was theorizing was, and my, you know, this is includes me. This includes my company. You know, these are things that. So why don't they? And then you have the outliers. Why does a company like Coinbase still exist? You know, Coinbase launched so early, and there were so many competitors that they just didn't allow for um, to to even take any of their market share. Uh, another example is BitMEX, and so I wanted to understand how those companies. And so, do you want me to give you my theory, or can I hear your no, theory? 1st no, I'd love to hear your theory, and I'm happy okay. to. So my we're theory well. is basically that, uh, the early companies were building, we were building products. I'm going to say we, we were building products for for us for that time. So you look at, uh, we never focused on how good the websites looked. We never focused on how efficient is, is the infrastructure rather. Can we just patch it together and make it work? Um, we were building products and services that we needed for the industry for the but there was no industry for those days. So so you look at the bit instance, and you look at for the for the for the local Bitcoins and you look for you look at all these companies that uh, a lot of the on and off ramps. You look at the early services companies that didn't even charge money for things like even the faucets or uh, the early API companies that now charge money for API services, the early mining pools that never charge. All these companies that they don't exist anymore. So my so my thing is, like, I feel like they were creating products for then. So you ask yourself, like, what's the difference in other industries? I think we didn't believe our industry would exist 10 years. Like we didn't think or didn't couldn't afford to build out products for the future because maybe like was there even going to be a future? Eventually, when Coinbase had launched, they were able to say, okay, like we're going to build the products to serve the needs of the community today, but we're also going to build products and services to build out for the community tomorrow. Now, if I realized this six years ago and I invested in all these companies like you guys did, I'd be a very rich man. But that's kind of like my theory. And so the companies today that build out for today and for tomorrow are the ones that are going to be successful. And that's why those don't exist anymore. That's my theory.
1: I think that's there's a lot. I think you've got that mostly correct. Um, I would add a few things. So, you know, and and some of the companies do exist. So we were a very early investor in Kraken. Kraken is doing quite well.
0: Perfect example. Yeah. Um, But many of the first
1: wave of companies, um, you're right kind of didn't survive and so you know i think that part of that is a is a amount is about the competitive dynamics. And part of it is is your observation that people were kind of sticking fingers in um, the holes in the dam at the time because all of a sudden there was an explosion of needs. That's why we founded Blockchain Capital. We realized that there weren't custodians and brokerage firms and ATM companies. And there was a bunch of, to use a civil engineering analogy, there was a bunch of bridges and roads and tunnels that needed to be built. And nobody was financing these companies. And so we raised our hand and said, we'll do it. Um, And we did it with a very long-term goal in mind that a lot of the infrastructure that we would um, be building seven years ago by investing in these companies and working with these founders would pay off 10, 20 years down the road. And so I think the companies like Coinbase and Kraken that have um, kind of stood the test of time um, from say seven years ago have been, uh, what you see in common there is talented um, founders that are working really hard both in the short term but also with an eye to the long-term. And this is a really tricky industry. I mean, I find it humbling as an investor. The technology moves so fast from, say, a lab at Dan Bonet's computer science department into a production environment in a blockchain in less than a year. And so it's a very fast-moving industry. It's really tricky as an entrepreneur and as a founder to solve these immediate short-term problems, but also be building an enduring franchise for the long-term. So that is the challenge of entrepreneurship. And the best founders and entrepreneurs try to recruit all the help they can get. And oftentimes, True, that yeah. means you know venture capitalists with domain expertise or past experience in financial markets like the folks that have are, are at our firm to help them kind of, to use a video game analogy, level up. You know, how do you get from the seed stage to the series A, from the series A to the series B? That How do you get to profitability so you don't have to uh, keep diluting your stake down as a founder? And so all of those types of activities are what we do day in, day out here at Blockchain Capital, which is try to identify and partner with the best founders and do everything we can to help them level up.
0: You've also brought in uh, and you were the first VC fund in our space to do the entrepreneur in residence model. And you've had like three or four crypto OGs uh, that have passed through your doors and have graduated Um, you know, uh, I think Spencer, uh, Brock Pierce, uh, I think Brock was a partner, Jeremy Gardner. So many people who have founded it, such amazing things have passed through your doors, like your alumni and worked through so many people. You can probably put together some cool metrics. For example, uh, I wonder if you look at, uh, and I'd love to see some of these numbers. I don't know if you're allowed to share. Um, but like how many jobs have been created, based on the companies that you guys have invested in. So taking how many jobs are available on all these companies that that you guys have have invested in, uh, it's probably, I'm going to assume, in the hundreds, if not thousands. Isn't that such a beautiful thing? Um,
1: It is a beautiful thing, actually. Um, We're very proud of the, the folks that we've assembled at Blockchain Capital, both the current folks, like my partner Spencer, who's next door, um, here uh, in our office in San Francisco, but also um, many of the entrepreneurs we've backed, the entrepreneurs and residents that have spent, you know, six months to a couple of years with us. And, you know, what you realize over time in the venture business is it is a people business. So we might be building decentralized systems with smart contracts that where code is law and all of these ideas. But at the very end of the day, other people behind these projects, whether it is a company that is capitalized with venture capital or whether it is a new protocol, the challenges are the same, which is, you know, how do you build a product or service that the world really needs and will they pay for it? Um, and so, you know, we spend a lot of time working in the trenches and on the front lines, effectively mid a new industry into existence. And so um, we have kind of an open door policy here. We often host meetups and hackathons and try to pair our companies with larger companies in the space so they can do business development deals. This is a lot of the company building. Your
0: office is in a great location too. I know that, I remember the brick wall. I think I was there when you first moved in.
1: Yeah, so we were at the Ferry Building, an office that you visited a couple times originally. And as we grew to 15 people, we moved into Snapchat's old space in San Francisco. And um, as you know, this is an industry that is constantly changing, constantly evolving. And so it takes a lot of research to stay um, kind of ahead of the curve and make sure that we're investing um, our capital wisely. You know, I find that uh, a lot of founders think that uh, venture capitalists have endless amounts of capital or money that it just kind of grows on trees, but we all have bosses. We all have clients. So we manage money for institutions. Those institutions yeah. really want us to make good investments and hopefully make them 10 times their money. If we don't do that well, we get fired. And then the next founder, the next Charlie Shrem that walks in through our door, we don't have a check to, to write to him. Yeah.
0: You you can't put some, you can't invest the teacher's, teacher's pensions into Richard Hart's hex fund or whatever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I won't touch that one, but yeah. no, with a
0: 10 foot pole.
1: Yeah, our clients are institutions and family yeah. offices and hedge fund managers. And, um, and, and that's something that we've seen slowly over time is um, a lot of the kind of traditional institutional investors are finally taking this industry seriously for the first time. You know, they've come to the conclusion that I've been um, talking about for years, which is this technology is important. It is here to stay. It's not going to be uninvented. Some of the best and brightest um, technologists oh, like around that. the world are are running, not walking, into this industry because they're inspired by it—the ideals and ideas around, um, you know, building new systems that are more fair, more equitable, and allow uh, a global population to participate in investing in startups or protocols or new ways to protect your money from inflation in the case of Bitcoin. Um, That's a great so-
0: quote. I'm gonna. I'm gonna tweet that and credit you you said bitcoin or crypto or whatever can never be uninvented it's a great day
1: i think it's already achieved escape velocity and and so the real question now is how big does this industry get and how fast um does, does or how much time does it take to really start putting a dent in some of the incumbent financial systems and and will blockchain technology have applications outside of um, the financial services industry. Um, we talked about the video game industry there. We, we were seeing an explosion of of interest in DeFi or what we call open finance or stable coins and crypto dollars. You know, a lot of the major yeah. companies are now attracted to these sub-sectors of the blockchain technology industry.
0: Okay, so it's great transition. Thank you. A lot of people still snub their noses at altcoins, right? You have, well, not altcoins, but like the, there's multiple layers of them now. So you look at like, the big, the big caps, as they call them, you have the Bitcoin, Ethereum, blah, blah, blah. Um, and those you go into, you walk into a room with a nice suit and tie on and you talk about some of these projects, like you know what you're talking about. You look good. Um, not you. I meant like in general. Uh, no. <laughs> Thank you. There's no question that crypto and gaming have gone hand in hand since the early days of Bitcoin when it first launched. And in fact, that's what really drove mass adoption. Companies like BitCasino, which is the first ever licensed Bitcoin casino, and brands like SportsBet.io. I mean, it's the reason people are using crypto and Bitcoin today. Fun, fast, and fair. When you're using uh, blockchain-based gaming, make sure you require that they are fair, because there's no reason that they shouldn't be transparent, because everything can be seen on the blockchain. Coin gaming is so cool. It's an ecosystem of brands products and people that are serious not just about shaking up the gaming industry but also the crypto industry. These guys have been around since the early days of Bitcoin. The CEO of coin gaming used to actually mine for Bitcoin and and use the Bitcoin miner to heat his home in Estonia. I mean those go down to like negative 25 degrees. So if you're if you're cool about driving crypto awareness together, if you got a question or you just want to connect with your team of like dreamers and doers the whole community, make sure you check them out. Coingaming.io, play some of their games, sportsbet.io or big casino. Fun, fast, and fair. I'm Charlie Schrem. I'll talk to you guys right in a minute. You walk into a room and you start talking about how uh how how Link or how uh, how you just 10X'd your, you know, on Elron or something like that, or whatever, some I don't know I made up some token name or whatever. It's it's kind of looked weird. But in 2002, taking off your bio, you and your brother. Not only like pioneered the strategy, but pioneered the term of nanocap investing. This was pre altcoins. It seems to me like this was the altcoin version of the of the stock world nanocap investing. Uh, what was like small microcap type of equities? Like what was that like? Uh, is that a fair comparison? Oh my god, I want to hear all about this. It's a great comparison.
1: So my brother and I started our hedge fund business in two thousand two, which was right after the dot com collapse. And we had um, my brother was working on Wall Street, taking internet companies public. I was working at an internet company at E-Trade, as I mentioned, and then founded a healthcare company. And what we saw is that after the dot-com collapse, investor sentiment on internet-related companies and businesses was at an all-time low. And so there were babies that were thrown out with the bathwater. There were companies that were profitable, that were growing, but they had a dot-com attached. And so um, my brother and I were are fundamentally contrarian style investors. And so in 2002, when nobody loved the internet and internet stocks, we decided we wanted to take a look. And so... You're exactly right. We were looking at sub-microcap equities. So these were companies that were publicly traded that had gone down by 90% that still had their venture capitalists involved. And we would go in and buy 5 or 10% of the company and reintroduce them to the world after they had kind of cleaned up their act. Um, and so that type of small cap or micro cap or the term we invented was nano cap investing does, does have some application into what we um, do today, which is oftentimes we're backing startup company at the seed stage or a brand new protocol. And these are nano caps. Um, And, you know, something that's probably you're very uh, aware of, as are many of your listeners is, you know, smaller cap projects or earlier stage companies have much higher risk. They also have much higher reward. And so we're in the business of taking risk Uh, in a calculated way and maximizing that chance of reward by helping our companies get to that next level with regulatory advice, with business development help, with corporate development help, with recruiting. We have a bunch of tools in the blockchain capital tool chest that allow our founders to have a better shot at breaking through and having their product and service be embraced by either consumers or enterprise clients. And so our small cap investing in the stock market is in some ways similar to early stage investing in the blockchain technology and crypto industry.
0: It's so insane how that works. And uh, what would you consider like micro cap or nano cap now uh, in, in crypto? Is there like a number when you're looking at a project or a token or something that you're that you're looking at? Yeah, it's hard Uh, to really say it's relative.
1: The top 10 crypto assets are um, more or less kind of billion dollar type crypto valuation networks. And uh, we would call mid caps probably billion to 200 million. And under 200 million in a crypto network valuation is probably a small cap. And sometimes we look at um, kind of next generation protocols that are nano caps that are, you know, 25 or a $50 million network valuation or lower. And, you know, those projects, again, are higher risk, but also higher return and um, you know we don't see anything that's going to dethrone bitcoin in terms of store of value i think bitcoin has proven that it is at this point gold 2.0 it is a store of value that is inflation resistant that is outside of the financial system But there's a lot of other uh, aspiring protocols and crypto assets that wanna do something different than Bitcoin and we spend a lot of time with the engineers and the people that are designing these protocols, cryptographers, experts in distributed systems, that are maybe doing something different, whether it's for supply chain or whether it's a new smart contract platform or something that's optimized for DeFi or something that is a stable coin. So there's all these kind of subsectors of of crypto that we spend um, all all of our time meeting with the founders and entrepreneurs and thinking and trying to figure out if um, ultimately customers will use this stuff because um, if you don't have organic people that are engaging in your protocol and it's just kind of small cap speculative activity um, as we saw in the crypto crash of 2018 you know the results can be pretty disastrous you know we saw that a lot of those nano cap coins go down 95% um, and um, you know that that leaves a mark and hurts that you, yeah. you want to invest in the, in the ones that are going up. And, and that's, um, we've seen that the venture business become a little more professionalized over the years where um, we're seeing really high quality founders and, and teams that are um, trying to build, you know, a distributed systems in a way that it creates value for um, not just the founders of the company, um, but also the engineers and the people that are building on top of it and the, and the owners of these crypto assets. And so it's really around community building, um, and these communities are, are, are important.
0: If you take, if you look at uh, like the past 10 years as almost, you know, your, your past seven years or, or eight years or whatever in, in the space, uh, if you look at it almost like a coronavirus chart, like we've all been, we've all become chart experts in the past few months. Uh, what type of things uh, have gone down and what have, has gone up? Has, like, for example, the quality of the entrepreneur that walks into your office, has that gone up or down? Uh, that, other things like that.
1: Yeah, without a doubt, the quality of the entrepreneurs has gone up. I think when you see massive wealth creation, uh, when you see new technology that, you know, um, is uh, disruptive and that is, you know, banks are starting to worry about or governments are trying to wrap their brains around, you know, the, uh, you know, I think we have a little bit of rebel in all of us. And so for crypto uh, enthusiasts, entrepreneurs, founders and investors, um, it kind of scratches that itch. People at a fundamental Level have a feeling more than anything else that the system is broken or the systems to use your analogy earlier, and they want to um, be a part of something that's bigger than themselves um, to create a new financial system that is more fair and more equitable. And so, you know, those ideals are are really compelling, and and the founders that are drawn to them tend to end up in this industry. And so, you know, the, the most popular that is true at Stanford's computer science department right now is machine learning. A close second is Dan Bonet's class on crypto. And so, you know, I actually look at the computer science department at Stanford as probably a leading indicator of where the industry is going. And so I think it's smart as an investor or a founder or an entrepreneur is to keep an eye on where are the best and brightest computer scientists, where they want to spend their time, Um, because that is a leading indicator of where a lot of resources, human resources and financial resources will go eventually. Um, What are you seeing, though? What are you seeing right now with that? Like, yeah, we're seeing an absolute explosion of entrepreneurial activity really around open finance or DeFi at the moment. And, um, and what's exciting is, you know, there are kind of real time experiments being done on production blockchains with hundreds of millions of dollars now. And so it's a it's an exciting industry, but essentially a dangerous industry in some ways because you know, even a mature uh, project like Maker had a pretty serious problem uh in DC last oh, summer. And so there's a lot of experimentation, and I think all of us in this industry are have a glimpse into the future of what the financial services look like in 10 years. And the bankers at JP Morgan aren't seeing that. The bankers at Goldman Sachs aren't seeing that. It's the They're young leaving. graduates. Um, But many of them, when they do see the light, we now are financing companies that founders used to come from Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or Facebook or Google. You know, a lot of the engineers at these internet monopolies are disillusioned. With the business models, of yeah, they're leaving. People. They're coming over to us. They're coming over to our industry, exactly. And so, you know, I think people are disillusioned with the with Wall Street as it sits. They're disillusioned with internet monopolies that abuse their customers, and and there hasn't been a, a place for these folks to go. Now they can go into the kind of crypto industry and build decentralized social networks or new financial systems around borrowing or lending, and and that's incredibly exciting. I love coming to work and working with our founders uh, every day.
0: You uh, can I totally change topics for a second because Anything. you talked about the KGB. Um, <laughs> so you studied that. I actually studied the NKVD. Um, the military. No, I did. Person. No, I did. Well, so I I studied like, uh, and I'm fascinated with Russian intelligence from the years of like the Russian Revolution. You know, around like the early the early teens, like nineteen. You know, like nineteen, starting like around 1918, 1920, 19, to like when basically NKVD became the KGB. Um, I think around the time of um, like after World War II, around the time of the 50s. So right, is that when the KGB was around the 50s, I think it was? I forget. Um, I'd have to go back and check my academic work, but that sounds close. Okay. So there was one, so it's a, a cool story was there. I had a friend who also like studied this cool cryptography and like write, writable cryptography. And we started writing letters to each other when I was in jail and we would do like cryptography. We would, we would follow like um, somebody's old, um, uh, spy uh, cryptography that they use, for example, with the playing card system, where if you take a deck of fifty-two cards and you you can predefine the order in advance, you can basically send encrypted messages to people uh, anywhere in the world as long as they know that predefined order as well. And so, uh, and you know, you have fifty-two cards. There's a billion different, trillions of different orders that fifty-two cards could be into. So, uh, no, it's funny that you talked about that because I love that shit, and I think there's a huge overlap when it comes to like early cryptography, like when the Enigma movie first came out, like every Bitcoiner went to go see it probably (laughs) on day one.
1: I think I've I've noticed that too. I probably um, grew up reading too many um, books on espionage. Um, But, um, you know, cryptography is an important part of our industry, distributed systems, engineers that understand protocol design. um, And, you know, our industry sits at the confluence of a lot of academic disciplines, whether it's kind of expertise in capital markets and the stock market, game theory, cryptography, distributed systems. And so it's a new industry that is effectively multidisciplinary and that's what makes it so, so tricky. Um, and um, it's also what makes it so intellectually enriching and exciting.
0: It really, it, what, what it enriches and excites you now is what I want to know not just on a personal level, I'm curious to hear about that because I always want to know what motivates other crypto entrepreneurs and investors, but uh, what is exciting in terms of uh, investing? Like if someone walked through your door and they're like the perfect entrepreneur and they said, I'm building this, what would just make you excited? Because I have to say, the people listening to this show are those entrepreneurs and are those investors who may want to you know, invest in your next uh, uh, fund or whatever.
1: Yeah, so there's a bunch of areas of um, focus for us right now. Um, DeFi or open finance is a huge one. Um, we're seeing absolutely astronomical growth. You know, things like Compound or Aave or yeah, Maker. it's crazy. Um, these, this is seriously impressive um, growth metrics. And a lot of this stuff, though, is still what I would say in the realm of kind of hobbyists and tinkerers. There's, um, the people that are engaging in a lot of these DeFi protocols are fairly sophisticated folks themselves. Um, they're not at a large financial institution. Oftentimes, they're individual investors or they have people with uh, deep knowledge of computer science. And and so, um, we're seeing a whole new products and services um, being built um, that are novel and that the history has never seen. So, to use Maker as an example,
0: yeah, Ma- Maker is so kind
1: cool. of a community-owned credit facility. Um, and, you know, you. you You insert your collateral, whether that's Ether or Bitcoin, and you can pull out a stablecoin die and go use that capital more productively. But just to hit the pause button for a moment, that's the first time in human history that people have been able to basically take a loan from themselves. um, And... And there's no credit analyst involved. It's an algorithm in a smart contract, and so you know what we're seeing is new, more effective ways for capital efficiency, uh, new ways to tap uh, customers in different jurisdictions. What's great about these blockchain ecosystems is they're global. So you're not just rolling something out in one state in the United States um, and trying to uh, adhere to all these arcane um, regulatory laws. But these are launched globally at the same time, which is very different than the internet in the '90s, where the U.S. companies like Yahoo and Google. Uh, E-Trade um, and others had kind of a 20-year head start on Alibaba. or. Tencent. Yeah,
0: we forget that. We forget that when the internet launched, it was largely an American thing. Correct. And so what we see
1: now in crypto that is different from the internet of the mid-90s is that this is a global industry. You know, you look at Binance and BitMEX. Um, these are monsters. I actually was recently going through some old notes and you talked about who are some of the, the early entrepreneurs. Um I was looking at my uh, notes with Arthur and BitMEX, and at the bottom of it says, it's not a Mexican Bitcoin exchange. Uh, oh, my God, that's great. <laughs> so that was one of the ones that got away from us. Arthur's obviously built a, an incredible business and is hanging out in Hong Kong, looking like he's having a lot of fun and making tons of money. But uh, venture capital There were a
0: few that got away too for me. Always have
1: stories of the big fish that got away. That's, that's one of ours.
0: I could have seated Coinbase, like I was sitting in his house with Tony Gallippi and Roger, and I, you know, I, I, miss, I just scuffed my nose and walked away from Brian while he was still working for Airbnb. You know, it's like my the one thing I wish I didn't have was that damn ego as a kid because when I first got into this space, if I didn't have that, I would have done a lot better things and I wouldn't have got myself into trouble. Uh, so, that's, so yeah, totally,
1: that's a very self-aware, um, kind of observation that you're making and, and, yeah, but
0: I have to go to jail to get that self-awareness that's though. A, that's a tough, that's a tough <laughs> question uh, for
1: sure. But, uh, what we've found over the years, investing in the public stock markets, in the private venture capital markets in the crypto markets, we've seen bull markets, we've seen bear markets is ego does get in the way. Um, yeah. This is a humbling business, um, investing other people's capital and partnering with founders and um, doing everything you can to help them build their business. And so, I actually think ego gets in the way. Um, there's a lot of people in our industry that want to spend all time, all their time on Twitter, trying to look cool to one another. Um, we like to work a little bit more behind the scenes to help our founders and entrepreneurs um, make sure that they can build an enduring business and um, have salaries and for their employees that pay for their families. You know, we have. You know, thousands of thousands of, of employees um, at our portfolio companies that have a, a that make a living in part because we were able to finance their business when it was unprofitable, uh, and now it's profitable and growing. And Coinbase is a great example. Um, Brian Armstrong is a remarkable entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. He is the guy is yeah. constantly working. He's built a very valuable business, and those are the types of folks that we try to identify and partner with early. But you're right, ego can get in the way.
0: You 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 brought up something so important that no one realizes. Our community, our industry is largely credit, you have to credit the VCs and the investors and the angel investors, especially, who, you know, threw money at the most risky things possible in the early days. But what people don't realize is that what you said earlier was very smart. I wanna I want to add to it. You said that VCs don't have unlimited money. They don't have billions of dollars just sitting in accounts that's like ready to spend. So VCs go have to go out, yourself included, and raise funds to then raise that money to go out and then invest in these companies. So while I could be like an entrepreneur and investor and I have to sit and convince you to invest in my company, you have to go out to very wealthy people and institutions and pensions and stuff and convince them to let you invest their money in this crypto thing. Do you remember like what were those conversations like those at first fund? I mean, that must have been harder, like 10 times harder than actually raising any money for any crypto company.
1: So you're right. Um, it's it's even more tricky than that, because oftentimes the people that you would solicit for capital to invest in a venture fund, these are people that have made their money in the traditional system. These are Wall Street type folks. So the pitch is kind of like, Hey, Charlie, you're a, a billionaire that made, you know, was a founder of Goldman Sachs and I want you to invest into a company that's going to go try to make Goldman Sachs, you know, uh, a, a, a crippled type company. And so you're asking people to sow the seeds for their own destruction, effectively. That's a tricky pitch. Plus, blockchain technology and crypto assets, you know, our, our blockchain technology is an emerging technology industry and crypto assets are a new asset class. There's a there's a tremendous amount of education. I mean, I've met with thousands of invest, uh, institutional investors and uh, as recently as this morning, because um, we're raising our fifth venture capital fund. And so there's a lot of education and people still have kind of at first, usually an allergic reaction. Um, if they're from yeah. the traditional financial world, they think Bitcoin is still uh, you know, being used for nefarious purposes or what have you. And if you want to start talking about open finance or stable coins, there's another you know, set of um, concepts they need to grasp. And so there's That's a funny. massive educational lift to get investors to invest in funds like ours or Andreessen Horowitz's. And then we, in turn, go and invest in, in startups. So effectively, we all have a boss and what we haven't seen in our industry yet is a lot of the companies go public or be acquired for big sums. And that's what institutional investors want to see. They want to see a return on their capital. And so when Coinbase goes public or Kraken or Ripple or Digital Currency Group, those are four of the likely first IPOs, then funds like ours return money back to the investors with a hopefully a great return. And then it's easier to keep raising more funds so we can keep supporting more entrepreneurs so they can go Put a dent in the universe and pursue their dream of a new product or a new service or a new protocol
0: is that the best exit strategy for for companies in, in our space uh I, going public or i guess can, how come we haven't seen a, a bigger consolidation yet like especially in the crypto atm business for example or some other other industries where there's just kind of no need to have so many that can consolidate better
1: the short answer is regulation i mean the us regulatory environment has been uncertain for years um, to use a traffic light analogy, you know, the SEC, the US Securities and Exchange Commission, has, um, I think, done the industry and consumers a disservice. You know, they basically are not telling founders the rules of the road. And so in absence of the rules, people figure out, should I drive 30 miles an hour or 70 miles an hour?
0: They do it through enforcement. Like that's how we're learning rules through enforcement. That's how every time there's an enforcement action, whether someone goes to jail or there's a big fine, that's where we get our clarity from. And I don't think that's the right way we should be doing things. It's kind of like dealing with the KGB
1: when you um, deal with the SEC, you know, they will tell you uh, they'll get to that. So for that traffic analogy, they'll say, hey, Charlie, that's a red light. You can't do that. You're in trouble. Or here's a yellow light. We're not sure we're going to get back to you in some unspecified period of time. What the the U.S. regulatory authorities until very recently with the OCC, they haven't given the industry a green light. How do we go forward? And as a result, a lot of the most talented entrepreneurs, a lot of the most interesting projects have been forced offshore. So you mentioned our token, um, which um, uh, we issued as a kind of tokenized version of our third fund. We had to issue that out of Singapore or Switzerland was another option. Um, and, and Charlie, you were actually, you know, um, working on a project at the same time. You were part yeah, of the remember for that. We were parallel uh, working on different projects. You had a token that was backed by uh, revenue around certain businesses having to do with outhouses, if I'm not mistaken.
0: It was a very simple concept. Yeah, business that's always going to be around is always needed. I found one, a very old one that's always going to be around and always going to make money because everyone needs shit picked up. And it doesn't make a huge amount of money, but it was a proof of concept. We're going to raise a million dollars and tokenize the company like the day of I chickened out. Well, and for that reason, I the night before I was like, I don't want to go back to jail. I was scared shitless. Yeah. The, um,
1: so you were trying to tokenize a business. We were trying to tokenize a fund. The ideas were similar. Um, yours was around, you know, waste removal. Maybe it was the first shit coin. Um, yeah, it was the
0: first shitcoin. coin actually, <laughs> uh,
1: that I never launched. And ours was
0: really around
1: how can we make a venture fund that would be liquid, where a token would represent an ownership in that fund. And we did go forward with ours. We tried to do it in an SEC compliant way. We hired a bunch of fancy lawyers and did a a Reg S offering for international investors and a Reg D offering for uh, domestic investors. And that was the first security token. Um, But the SEC really has um, a lot of work to do to give this industry a fighting chance here in the U.S. Otherwise, all the projects and the technology development will accrue to countries like China or, or Switzerland or Singapore. And so the U.S. is at a competitive disadvantage at the moment.
0: Is it a problem largely in in how in how our country is run? And what I mean by that is that you look at Malta or any country in the world, Singapore is an example. You look at any other example except for America. What they just what they do is they create new legislation. Like my friend uh, is in the parliament in Albania, and and Albania just is actually I don't know, I don't know if I'm going to talk about it, but Albania is about to release the most comprehensive legislation for cryptocurrency companies or crypto you know digital asset companies in the world. And, but they can create new legislation, write it from scratch. Here, it's always been, and I'm very frustrated, it's always been about like applying old legislation to our industry. And it's kind of shitty because that's what you just talked about doing, right? Clarity, applying old, archaic. It's like almost like what did the, when Thomas Jefferson was writing the declar, you know, the Constitution, what did he say about, you know, like issuing uh, d- tokens on Binance? <laughs> How are you supposed to? It doesn't really make sense, but that's what they're doing. Joe,
1: you made a great point, which is what the regulators in the U.S. are doing are legislating via enforcement. So there are hundreds of subpoenas out in the field right now in our industry.
0: Millions of subpoenas. Yeah,
1: out. And, and this has been going on for years. And so, you know, in, in some ways that makes for very poor um, entrepreneurship when, you know, I like to say that the enemy of capital formation is uncertainty. And so, if the founders and the investors and startups don't know the rules of the road, it's really hard to proceed. And so, the SEC, in absence of any new lawmaking from our legislative branch, Congress— They're basically going out and kind of bullying the industry. And so what we need is effectively new laws. The problem that we're experiencing with the existing regulatory regime in the U.S. is I once had to take my Series 7, which is what, you know, stockbrokers, wealth managers, and hedge fund managers. And and you have to learn a bunch of U.S. regulatory code. And I don't remember much of it, but I do remember the years in which these laws were drafted. And the years were 1933, 1934 the Investment Company Act of 1940. And so, you know, these are 70 and 80-year-old laws that are not well-suited to natively mobile, natively digital bearer assets, which are effectively what crypto assets are. And so, there likely needs to be some new laws that kind of give this industry some breathing room. And by the way, there is precedent for this. In the 90s, The U.S. regulators around the Internet of Information were the FTC, the FCC, the IRS. There was no sales tax on your Amazon order for a decade. And the Federal Trade Commission and the FCC that works with Spectrum worked with the Internet companies to make sure that they knew the rules of the road. And as a result, the U.S. companies dominate the Internet. There's an argument they dominate too much. What we don't have is that clarity for the internet of value or for blockchains. And so hopefully that's improving. You know, last week, the office of the comptroller of the currency came out and told Mm. told banks, hey, it's okay to to custody crypto assets. That's a guy by the name of Brian Brooks, who was- That was a big deal. It was a big deal. Because it it
0: wasn't just about custodializing. It was about just a simple act as like, hey, don't be afraid to open up Bitcoin bank accounts. That's really what it was about hundred percent. And, you know, Brian
1: Brooks used to be the chief legal officer of Coinbase. So he's very well schooled in the nuances of this industry. And you mentioned the ATM industry earlier. The problem we've invested in ATM companies years ago, and we don't do it anymore because it's effectively a logistics business. How do you move physical banknotes around? And banks oh, yeah. won't bank crypto companies still.
0: Still, 10 years later. It's the biggest problem I have. In 2016, I invested in a local Bitcoin ATM company. We had 11 machines at the time. Now we're one of the largest manufacturers in the country. Uh, we have over 120 machines putting out like 20 a month or whatever, Big, you know, crypto ATM. We dominate the South, Southeast US. is um, very profitable, does very well. And as all regulations like, you know, multiple bank accounts has Garda or whatever doing cash pickups at all the machines, all logistical. The issue is like you said, is where do you go from there? And cause uh, VCs want to invest in companies that have exit strategies what is an exit strategy for a company like that? Putting out a thousand machines, 5,000 machines or get bought up by a larger consolidation. So I think you're going to see a lot of that. There's a big issue with that. Um, people are afraid to start companies here. And that's, that's what I'm going to leave it at. I think that there's almost a fear where if you're an entrepreneur and you're American and I want to leave this, I want you know th- this to be like the thought. If you're an entrepreneur and you're an American and you're born here, you're raised here and you love this country like I do, like you do, where you domicile or where you base your company out of shouldn't even be a question. I agree with you. Yeah, no, it's a
1: shame. Listen, we should um, be encouraging the best and brightest young founders that are creating new protocols, new assets, new companies to do it uh, here in the United States. And and that's not happening now. Now, hopefully that'll change. Um, I spend a lot of time in Washington, D.C., briefing regulators and trying to let them know that this industry is here to stay. It's not going to be uninvented and we should be embracing it. This is... A lot of these systems, these blockchains, these new products and services allow for better, faster, cheaper um, products and services that um, that consumers will benefit from. Um, and the SEC is currently got this paternalistic view that, um, you know, investors need to be protected from themselves. So there's no Bitcoin ETF um, except for you know Barry Silberts that got. That got grandfathered in. So, you know, Barry's in this privileged, almost monopolistic position where he's got the only kind of uh, semi ETF out there and his business is gargantuan because of it um, and hats off to him. But um, what the SEC's real job is to have a, laying, a level playing field. And to make sure that there's no fraud in the industry, and that capital formation happens in an easy way, and so um, I think they're being uh, overly paternalistic on protecting consumers, and what they're really doing is protecting the banking industry.
0: Because that's what it comes down to. And you asked why, uh, like laws don't get changed. You know, everyone knows that when uh, attorneys work for various government uh, institutions, they end up going in private practice after. So that's why, like a lot of these laws won't get changed because. Our lawyers are the ones making money over the fact that there's no clarity. So I guess there's like lack of incentive. Same reason like the tax code won't change because accountants and the accountant lobby or whatever won't change that. But at the same time, like I don't want to end the show on a, on a down note, obviously. Um, things are doing really well and getting better. And we're just merely pointing out like the, the small negative inefficiencies. Largely, I think uh, as a country, but uh, as like a world – uh, this industry has grown so much in the past few years, and it is only, only getting started. There's so much more to go. We're not even, oh my God, we have not even scratched the surface. Like, people don't realize that the companies that we all have today, that we, we all interact with in crypto, they may well be the companies that are all be in a crypto museum 90 years from now. Think about that for a second. That's how early we are.
1: I think you're right. Um, It's really exciting to be present and involved in the birth of a new industry. Um, And that's what we're all doing. That's what your listeners are doing. That's what you've been doing. That's what we've been doing. And so, um, yes, there are some regulatory challenges, but they are surmountable. Um, And uh, what we see is that technology constantly is evolving in this industry and so even um, if it happens offshore it's happening is the good point is the good news um, and it's it's accelerating and so um, it's we're in an exciting inflection point in this industry where sentiment is changing. Um, entrepreneurs are drawn to this industry. Um, people are excited for these new financial products and services, um, and there's a global audience for it. And so um, I'm as bullish as I've ever been on this industry,
0: but it's still early days. I 100% agree with you. Yeah, I, I thank, you. thank you. Thank you for coming on the show today. I really appreciate taking the time. No, it was a pleasure, Charlie. I, I, I've
1: been an admirer of yours for a long time and um, uh, you do great work. I love your podcast. And so I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be on your show today. I'll see you later. All right, signing off from California.